Today our gospel lesson is from the 24th chapter of Luke, verses 13 through 43. This is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who encounter the risen Christ. It is the longest story of a resurrection appearance of Jesus in the New Testament. And we hear now the word of the Lord. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have taken place in these days? Jesus asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he would have been the one to have redeemed Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women in our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said But they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. We're talking about this. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus said to them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. 
For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is the word of the Lord. Dear God, this sermon will travel, will walk from ancient texts to the 19th century to today. It will cross countries and cultures, races and classes. In this journey, travel with us. That my words and the words of others may become, in the event of preaching, through your spirit, your word for us. Amen. Like many of you, I read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in high school. I understood it then as an adventure story set a few years before the Civil War in which a runaway slave named Jim and a rustic boy named Huck traveled on a raft down the Mississippi River, a river on which the city of my own childhood sat. In the years since, I've learned that Mark Twain's novel is a classic, leading Hemingway to say that all modern American fiction comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. In a pivotal scene about a quarter of the way through the novel, Huck and Jim get separated on the river by a thick fog. Huck leaves the raft to try to tie it to a towhead, but the raft gets away and floats down the river out of sight with Jim upon it. Huck secures a canoe and looks for Jim as Jim calls out to Huck and Huck calls out to Jim. But soon the sounds of the calls end and the two are separated in thick darkness and wet fog with no sense of where either is or how much time has passed. After an undetermined period of silence, Huck assumes that Jim is dead. I reckoned Jim had fetched upon a snag, maybe, and it was all up with him. Huck is exhausted, lies down in the canoe for a nap, But when he awakens much later, the stars are shining and the fog is gone. Huck sees a black speck on the water and then another black speck and then another. And this time he is right. It is the raft. When Huck gets to the raft, he finds Jim with his head down between his knees, asleep, his right arm hanging on the steering oar. The other oar is smashed off and the raft is littered with leaves and branches and dirt. Huck lies down under Jim's nose on the raft. He stretches out his fists against Jim and he notices Jim stir. Jim says, 
goodness gracious, is that you, Huck? And you ain't dead. You ain't drowned. You's back again. It's too good for true. It's too good for true. Let me look at you, child. Let me look at you. Let me feel of you. No, you ain't dead. You's back again, live and sound. The same old Huck, the same old Huck. Thanks to goodness. A few years after reading this novel, in which I admittedly did not remember this scene, I was sitting in church on a Sunday morning in college, something not all college students are known to do. And the minister preached on the lengthy story of the road to Emmaus that Patrick and Whitney and I have just read. The story in which three days after his death, Jesus appears to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. As is the case with most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, these disciples do not recognize him. He asks and they tell him what has gone on in Jerusalem the past three days. They tell him about the crucifixion of the one whom they had followed. He teaches them about the Messiah from the scripture that they hold in common. But even during this teaching and conversation, they do not recognize who he is. When they arrive to Emmaus, it is late, and so they ask him to stay the night. They share a meal of bread and wine. He takes the bread and breaks it in their midst. At that point, their hearts are opened, and they recognize him. But he immediately vanishes out of their sight. They then return to Jerusalem within the hour, joining the other disciples. Jesus again appears in their midst. They are all startled and frightened. He shows them his hands and his feet. And while they are still disbelieving for joy and wondering, he asks them for something to eat. And they give him a piece of broiled fish. And he eats. I still remember this phrase, disbelieving for joy, from its placement as the sermon title in the bulletin. I can still see this three-word title atop the manuscript that I took from the narthex the next Sunday. Somehow these three words, disbelieving for joy, spoke to me that day, spoke to me as a college freshman in the season of Easter, spoke to me several weeks after the death of my father. These three words appearing within and growing out of the longest narrative of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, the only thing I remember the minister saying about disbelieving for joy, disbelieving for joy, is it is the state we are in when we cannot believe that the good that has happened has actually happened. Is that you, Huck? Is that you, Huck, disbelieving for joy? Jim's surprise at Huck's resurrection. Jim's disbelieving for joy. 
is in many ways more understandable to us than the disciples' surprise at the resurrection of Christ. Jim has every reason to believe that Huck has drowned in the Mississippi, just as Huck believes that Jim has drowned. But by contrast, in all four Gospels, the disciples have been told ahead of time several times, the Son of Man will suffer, be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. Yet in all four Gospels, when women go to the tomb, they don't expect to find a resurrection. They expect to find a body. And when Jesus appears to his disciples, again, in all four Gospels, they either do not recognize him or on several occasions, they do not initially believe that he has been raised from the dead. Their surprise and disbelief are as intense as Jim's, even though they had been told ahead of time that he would rise. For many years in Christian theology and apologetics, people have argued and been convinced that the resurrection must be true because so many people believed it. Because it led to the rapid growth in Christianity the first few years and because it spread across the world to millions of people within a few hundred years, many have argued or concluded that the resurrection must be true. This argument has merit. It is convincing and and comforting to many people. But it has never been the primary argument for me believing in the resurrection. What persuades me, in fact, is more the opposite. Because the resurrection is so unlikely, because it is so impossible to understand, because it is so difficult to describe, we can only appropriate it by believing it. It is true because we cannot dissect it. It is true because we cannot describe it. It is true because it comes from outside history, outside nature, outside science beyond our powers to understand. It is true because the only way we can believe the the resurrection is to disbelieve it for joy. Is that you, Huck? Is that you, Huck? Is that you, Jesus? This scene in Huckleberry Finn is beautiful for any of us who have had an experience of disbelieving for joy, who've had an experience of not believing that that which has happened has actually happened. It is beautiful for that. But the scene also marks a beautiful step in the development of the novel. No sooner does Jim awaken and express his utter disbelief and joy that Huck is back then Huck, in characteristic fashion, decides to play a trick on Jim. Huck tries to convince Jim that Jim has been dreaming all of this up while he was asleep on the raft, that the fog, the separation, the return, the reunion, all are just a figment of Jim's dream. Because Jim trusts Huck so deeply, he seems to accept initially, 
that he has dreamed the whole incident. But within a few minutes, Jim realizes that Huck is trying to trick him. Jim looks straight at Huck and without smiling says, when I got all wore out with work and with the calling for you and went to sleep, my heart was most broke because you was lost. And I didn't care no more what a, what become of me and DeRaf. And when I wake up and find you back again, all safe and sound, the tears come and I could not, I, I could have got down on my knees and kiss your foot. Eyes so thankful. And all you was thinking about was how you could make a fool of old Jim with a lie. That truck there is trash. And trash is what people is that puts dirt on the head of their friends and makes them ashamed. Jim then turns and goes into the wigwam on the raft. I need to say that most of the time in preaching, I choose decorum over truth, which is sometimes a challenge when quoting dialogue or dialect of others. But in this instance, in order to feel the emotional intensity of Huck's response to Jim, once Jim has confronted Huck, I need to choose dialogue and dialect over decorum. I hope you are able to accept that choice. When Jim turns and goes into the wigwam, Huck confesses what his being chewed out by Jim does for him. That was enough, Huck says. It made me feel so mean I could almost kiss his foot to get him to take it back. It was 15 minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to a nigger. But I'd done it. And I weren't ever sorry for it afterwards neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks and I wouldn't done that one if I had known it would have it would have make him feel that way. Prior to this scene, despite his friendship with Jim, Huck has been committed to the moral code of his day the only moral code he has ever known. It is a moral code that accepts slavery and believes that a runaway slave has to be returned to its owner. But when Huck is confronted with the depth of affection that Jim has for him and that he has for Jim, that recognition of their common humanity is so powerful that it leads Huck to discard the moral code under which he has been raised and to put all of his energy 
towards Jim's ride for freedom. In the context of the utter unlikeliness of the resurrection that Huck and Jim have to one another, Huck is able to say, I'm sorry, to someone he has not previously considered his equal. His moral code has begun to move beyond the ingrained customary beliefs of his time and place. And it all begins with the unlikelihood of the resurrection that he experiences. My friends, if you have ever been blessed with an experience of disbelieving for joy, I hope this sermon has helped you on a personal level to recognize and remember that experience. And I hope the recognition and the recall are as powerful today as they were the hour you first believed. On a national and even global level, we live in fractious, intense times in which we seem more ready than we have been in a good while to view and speak of other people as less than our equals and sometimes even as less than human. In these times, I hope that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so unbelievable it cannot help but be true, leads us all to the kind of telling the truth apologizing, moving beyond moral codes that are more ingrained beliefs in time and place than they are truth about human beings and about the ways of God. I hope that believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who are gems will speak the truth to those who are hucks. And we who are hucks will listen. Confess, respond with affection, apologize, and genuinely change. I hope, in other words, that we all can and will speak the truth to one another. An African-American scholar sees in this novel similarities to jazz and blues. He has written of Huck. Huck's efforts to free Jim comprise a profound expression of love. An assertion of the principle that for the American promise to be realized, everyone must learn not only to go it alone, to solo but also to make music together, to swing. This, he says, is what Huckleberry Finn learns to do. Huck knows how to solo. And like a true bluesman, he learns how to swing. Mark Twain started writing this book a few years after the Civil War and said it years before that great divide. It took him Ten years to write it. Resurrection is so disbelievable 
that it can still break through and overcome the widest gulfs we have today. It can still break through and overcome the widest divides if we, you and I, will allow it to work its miracle. Amen.